Let's start with, with prayer. <clears throat> Father, we, we just come to you because the desires of our heart are, are to see you build your church here in Chigwell. Lord, we want to be the people that you want us to be. Lord, we want to be able to more and more organise our lives individually and corporately in, in the way that your word says. Lord, we want to be a light in a dark place. And Lord, Essex is a dark place. Lord, we want to be a channel for your love and your power to be manifested to, to the unbelievers around us. And Lord, we pray now that as we turn to your word, that again you will teach us. Father, we pray that your word will go deep into our hearts. Lord, that it will be life-changing. Lord, I pray that people who hear will not only receive the teaching, but Lord, I pray that they'll catch the vision. And Lord, it'll burn into their spirits and that they'll just live for it. Just be living for what you want to do. So, Lord, we pray that you'll anoint us now as, as we continue the teaching about what it means to, to be a church. And, oh, Lord, we just pray that you'll really bless us now through your word, because we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, we've come to the, the third talk in the, um, the Church Life series that we've started, and uh, we'll just recap very briefly, what have we covered thus far? So far, we have seen, quite simply, that a church, a church, is a body of believers in a local area who have been called together by God to do his will and to live in obedience to his word, which is the Bible. That is what a church is. We've seen also that a church is God's home. It's his household. The church is where Jesus lives. We are where Jesus is living in Chigwell, the Chigwell Christian Fellowship. We are the local family of God, a church. And we've seen as well that the sharing of our lives together, or fellowship, is the basis of our relationships as brothers and sisters in that family. It's not just enough to be in the family, not just enough to be related in the family, but we need to have the relationships which are worthy of a family, and that is fellowship, the sharing of our lives together. And we saw also that the Bible tells us that it's the quality of our fellowship with each other, i.e. it's the quality of our relationships between each other that shows the actual quality of our individual relationship with God. So that if we want to ask, what kind of state is my relationship with God really in? I mean, am I really in fellowship with God? All right. Well, you answer that question by looking at the state of your relationships with other people. If they are continuously in tatters, it's probably the case that your relationship with God is as well. And yet, on the other hand, if you're at peace, I mean, obviously there are times when someone might have it in for you. There can be division that isn't your fault. But can you see the point? There are some, some, some Christians, it doesn't matter where, they can't get on with anyone. You know, I mean, you can't have a half hour's peace with them because something gets up their nose and they fly. Can you see what I mean? It's by looking at our lives in that respect that we're really going to have the answer to the question, are we actually right with God? Are we actually in fellowship with God? Or is it a bit of the old hot air, as it were? And that what we're going to do now is that having defined that, what a church is and what fellowship is, the rest of this series is going to be breaking that down into the detail that we need to in order to understand it. And that the next place we've got to go tonight is this. We've got to see what the Bible teaches 
is the threefold aim of a church. Biblically, the church has a threefold aim, and it's to that that we turn. And if you go to 1 Thessalonians and chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians and chapter 1, and one of the things that we're going to see about this threefold aim, or three things that a church has got to be about, is that there is a very clear and a very important order of priority. <clears throat> Tonight, we're going to see what our priorities are as a church. <clears throat> now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and to start with, we're going to read from verse 2 through to verse 8. That's his poor writing. He says, We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labour of love and steadfastness, of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brethren, beloved by God, that he has chosen you. For our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. We know what kind of men, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, with joy inspired by the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Archaea. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. Now then, there are three priorities in there. Did you spot them? Well, I'll show them to you. Paul here is writing to a church and he's expressing his prayer, his hope, what he wants to see in that church. And he's thanking them for their response thus far to all that God has shown them. And the list of priorities are these. Because in verses, verse 2 through to verse 6, the emphasis is on their relationship as a church with God. He says, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labour of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you go through from verse 2 to verse 6, the emphasis there is on the Lord himself, their relationship with God himself. Now that is the first priority. The number one priority of any church is to the Lord himself. But then go down into verse 7 and look at the second one. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Priority number two is to other believers, to one another as the family of God. And then in verse 8 he says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone everywhere and Paul's referring there to the fact that, that, that you know that kind of the whole surrounding area was hearing about what the law was doing amongst these Christians and of course Paul's refer, re referring there to the world that their faith was going out to those who didn't believe and so what you've got is the Lord other believers and then the world, and that is our order of priority. Just read verse 3 again. He speaks about your work of faith and your labour of love, and then he defines it. So what we have is simply this. We, as a church, and this applies to every church, we, as a church, are called to do a work of faith and a labour of love. And that work of faith and labour of love is towards the Lord first. Our number one priority is the Lord himself. But then, our number two priority is a work of faith and labour of love towards one another as brothers and sisters in the family of God.
And then number three, and this comes last, important, but it's number three, is that we have a work of faith and a labour of love towards the world. And it is in that order. And we must be very, very careful over the years to make sure that we don't get that list of priorities mixed up. It's very important, whatever you're doing in life, in every area of life, to keep your priorities in their correct order. As soon as you get your priorities wrong, you will eventually head for a mess. Because you'll find that in one area of your life after another, there's going to be a breakdown and everything's going to be a jumble, everything's going to go wrong. And so as a church, we've got to understand and keep to the fore our orders of priority. And they are the Lord, number one, one another, number two, and the world, number three. Let's see this again. Go to John's... John's Gospel and find chapter 17 <coughs> and this is the prayer that Jesus was praying in the garden shortly before he was crucified and you'll actually see that this is precisely what Jesus is praying for of course what we have here in John 17 is a prayer for the church universal it's a prayer for believers throughout time and therefore it applies to us as well. John 17, and first of all, verses 7 and 8, and he says, They know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words which you gave me, and they have received them, and know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. Go down into verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, can you see Jesus is beginning, number one, with God the Father. All right. Now then, go into verse 20. Look at this. He says, I do not pray for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that's us, all right, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. So again, can you see now Jesus is praying for the fellowship of the church? He's praying for oneness and unity amongst believers. Oneness and unity, fellowship. We saw that last time. So there we have it, the Lord and then each other as believers. But look at the second half of verse 21. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. And there we have the order again. The Lord first, then each other as a church, and then the world. Let's just read on into verse 22 and 23, and we'll see it again. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. All right, there's the Lord, number one. So that they may become perfectly one. There's each other, all right? So that the world may know that you have sent me. And there you have the order again. The Lord, each other, as brothers and sisters in the church, and then the world. Now, if you think about it, that makes perfect sense. And for this reason, we've seen that the church is the family of God. We are God's family in Chigwell. We are his home. And we've seen as well that Jesus is the head of the family, isn't he? He is our head. We're the family, he is the head, all right? But also, a family is always relating and mixing with and inviting to come to them outsiders who aren't members of the family, all right? So can you see that? You've got the head of the family, Jesus, then you've got the family itself, us as a church, and then you've got outsiders, the world. All right. And so the order is always the head, the family, and then visitors are outsiders. Now then, if you think about it, for a family to be able to relate easily to people who aren't in the family, or for a family to invite someone round for an evening, 
there's got to be two things that are absolutely right. The first thing is this. There's got to be a right relationship between the head of the family and the family, isn't there? So that's number one. A home, a family, can only be in order when there's a good relationship between the head of the family and the family itself. But then secondly, in order to safely invite outsiders so they can come and enjoy themselves, there's secondly got to be right relationships between the actual members of the family themselves. I mean, for instance, have you ever sort of been to uh, a family, you know, sort of called in on a family, in the middle of a family row? I mean, it's awful, isn't it? Now, can you see the point? Outsiders are only going to be able to relate into a family on the assumption that relationships are right, firstly between the head of the family and the rest of the family, and secondly between the members of the family themselves. And the head of the family always comes first because it's only through being in right relationship with Jesus as our head that we're going to be able to be in right relationship with each other. And we've got to make sure that as a church we're not the equivalent of a squabbling family. Relationships have got to be right in those areas. So therefore, let's now break down and define very, very clearly our order of priorities, our threefold aim as a church. Number one, it is the fact that we have a work of faith and a labour of love towards the Lord. That comes tops. Secondly, we have a work of faith and a labour of love towards one another, towards the family. We've got to be right with each other as a family, the church. And then thirdly, our work of faith and labour of love towards the world, unbelievers. That is, those who as yet are still outside the family. And of course, we are wanting to see them become part of the family. Now, there are the three priorities that we have. And each one breaks down into two separate aspects. Now, in actual fact, what we're going to do for the next six talks after this one is to look at each aspect in much greater detail. But today, I want to kind of give you an overview or lay a foundation for it. So, for priority number one, our responsibility of loving God and being in right relationship with him, there are two aspects of that work of faith and labour of love. And the first one is this, and a lot of Christians would forget to start here. When you think about it, you think, yeah, of course, of course, that, that is the most important thing above absolutely everything. But you'll only realise that when you've heard it. If someone was to ask you, I bet you wouldn't say this, but it's absolutely lovely. What is the, of the two things that make up our number one priority to God, of the two of them, which, one's comes, which one comes first? Well, I'll tell you. We are here to show God that we love him. We are here to show our love for God. God wants to hear that he is loved by us. Go to Matthew, Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22 and 5 verse 34. And this is uh, when some people came up to speak with Jesus about something. When the Pharisees heard that he silenced the Sadducees, they came together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. He said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. God wants to actually see that we love him. I mean, those of you who are married, you probably know that your husband or wife loves you. But isn't it nice when they tell you? Isn't it nice when they do that little something that is just for you to let you know that they, they love you? 
Now that is precisely what God wants from us. He wants to see us showing him and telling him that we love him and displaying the love we have for him. There are two things in the Christian life that you mustn't get mixed up. The Bible teaches, and this is absolutely right, that we are God's servants. It is right that we serve God in obedience. But what you've got to remember is that first and foremost, we are not God's servants, but we are his children. That is first and foremost in the Bible. It is absolutely true that God is our Lord God, and it is right that we serve him and are in obedience to him. But before he's our Lord God, he has shown us that he is also our Father God. God does not just want to be obeyed, that's not what it's about. God has actually become our Father by making us become his children. Go to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, and we'll read from verse 7. This is brilliant, what Jesus is saying here. I mean, just get this into your hearts, what Jesus is saying here. And because this is in the Sermon on the Mount, it's so easy to just read the words without getting the revelation. He says, look, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you'll find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Now listen to this. He says, if you then, who are sinful, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. Can you see absolutely at the forefront of everything that God has done is the fact that he is our Father. Go to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8 and find verse 14. And Paul says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. See the emphasis, we're his children. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship. When we cry, Abba, Father, and in the Greek that's Daddy, Daddy, when we cry, Daddy, Daddy, because that's what little children cry, and we are God's little children, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs. Now, can you see, what comes first is our relationship of love towards Father. That is foremost in his mind, and that must be foremost in our mind as a church. Absolute number one priority is to show our love for God. Go to John 15, something that Jesus said. John 15 and find verse 15. And this is tremendously important. John 15 and verse 15, and listen to what Jesus says. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Now that doesn't mean that we aren't the servants of God, but what it does mean is that we are primarily his family. And one of the things, I mean, if you want to see a really good relationship between a father and children, it will obviously be that father is in charge and the children know that, yes. But the point is, father is going to be their best friend. Isn't that what fatherly love is all about? It's being the best friend in the world to your children. And here, 
Jesus is saying, look, it's not so much that I want you as servants, I want you to be my friends. It's the relationship of love between us that comes first. I, I, I told you here before that, that for, for years and years as a Christian, um, I wouldn't have said this if someone asked me, but the truth of the matter was that uh, for years Jesus was, was kind of my boss. He was my boss. I mean, I knew him and I sort of loved him within the parameters of the understanding that I had. But you see, my understanding was that, you know, kind of Jesus is my boss, Jesus is Lord, and I am his servant. Now, that is absolutely true, but I was way out of balance on that level. And my Christian life was really lived under this intense pressure the whole time to perform for God. You see what I mean? It was all about getting results. It was all about being a good boy. It was all about performing. Whatever a Christian is, that's what I've got to be, and if I work hard at it, then God will bless me. And, I mean, that is not what Christianity is all about. God doesn't want us to work for him and perform for him. That's, that's not the thing that's in his mind. The primary thing in his mind is that he wants that loving relationship with us. And then, of course, the point is, the more you fall in love with the Lord, the more you're going to serve him. The more you're going to work for him. But it's a service not born out of the pressure of trying to keep in his good books. It's a service born of the fact, well, if Dad wants me to do it, that's good enough for me. That is where Christian service comes from. And so we've got to see the whole time that of this pro our first priority as a church is to God. And the first aspect of it is that we are here primarily to show our love for God as our Father. And we're going to see that what that means, and we'll be coming on to this next week, is that we must therefore be a worshipping church. And it is worship in the Bible which is all to do with showing God that you love him. And we'll make that connection next time. But the second aspect of our labour of love towards the Lord is that also we must ensure that as a church we are all the time continuously growing into obedient and mature and holy believers. Go to John 14. John 14 and verse 15. And this is where we're going to see where service starts to come into it. John 15. John 14, verse 15, and Jesus says simply this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, I don't know so if, if you ever ask yourself, I do sometimes, do I love God? Do you ever kind of ask yourself that question? Do I love God? How, how can I know that I love God? And Blinder and I were talking the other night about the fact that some people seem to have a very much more obviously emotional thing going with God than others. And I think maybe there's a natural inclination to assume that people who have that very overtly emotional relationship with the Lord always expressing their love, all right, that they are necessarily closer to God. Now, I'm not sure if that is true. I'm not saying they're not close to God, but I think that something like that is as much to do with character as anything else. And you see, the point is that for some people who aren't like that, and I mean, I'm hoping that I'll get more like that, okay, but uh, I mean, I'm not, my experience of the Lord is not especially an emotional one. I mean, emotions are involved, you know, I mean, sort of 
I mean, I, I sometimes march up and down the flat yelling hallelujah because I get so excited. But I'm still, for whatever reason, too inhibited to do it in front of anyone else. And, you know, I suppose in time the Lord will enable me to grow out of that, you know, so that I'll be free to do it whoever's there. But you see, the main point is that sometimes if I ask myself, do I love God, I do I at this moment have great feelings of love for God, then probably... On most occasions, the answer is no. But does that mean that I don't love God? No, it doesn't. And it's for this reason. The question isn't, in that instance, do you love God, but do you do what he says? Do you obey his commandments? So therefore, if I'm having a little wonder whether I love God, I conclude, yeah, I must do, because I live in substantial obedience to the Word of God. Not perfect obedience, none of us are in perfect obedience, but the desire of my heart is to be in obedience. So therefore, I do love God. So can you see that certainly part of the purpose of being a church is that together we can be growing into more obedient, more mature and more holy people. Now, remember, this priority number one is in relationship to God. And if you think about it, it is important for a father, for his children to turn out well, isn't it? Those of you who have children, you want them to turn out well. I mean, them becoming good children is part of that relationship that you have with them as a parent. I mean, after all, who wants unruly kids? Who wants to rear monsters? Well, I'll tell you, the Lord doesn't. So therefore, he does want obedience out of us. He does want us to be serving him. Not in the sense of him big boss and if we obey, him bless us. I mean, we're not talking about like that. But the point is he wants us to be responding to his love and the response of our love to him is always in obedience to his word. And so therefore, really... Part of what the church is all about is that God wants us, each one of us, but we can only do this together, to be growing up. That's what maturing is. He wants us to be growing up together in the Lord. Go to Ephesians 4 and we'll actually see this. And over the weeks, Ephesians 4 is a chapter we're going to be spending quite a lot of time in. But just a quick little dippy dippy tonight. Ephesians 4, let's read from verse 11. And his gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipment of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. He doesn't want us to be baby Christians all the time. He wants us in mature manhood. Look, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, the latest fad, you know, the latest charismatic craze, all right, by the cunning of men, by their craftiness in deceitful wiles. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every joint with which it is supplied, when each part is working properly, makes bodily growth and upbuilds itself in love. The Lord is wanting us to grow up to be mature, reliable and stable children. And it's in bringing us together as a church that he accomplishes that in us. That Christian maturity, that really growing up in the Lord, which is what God wants, it's in his heart. Those of you fathers with children, it's in your, you long for them to grow up, don't you know, to, to come to be a, a good, solid, well-balanced adult. That is what you want for your children. Well, that is what God wants for us. But that cannot be accomplished if you are a solitary Christian. 
that maturity can only come in the context of being in fellowship with a church. And so there you have the servanthood aspect of our priority to God, obedience and service to him. Right, that's priority number one. There's the two aspects there. But priority number two is our work of faith and labour of love to each other our responsibility to each other as a church. This comes second. Right, what's the first aspect? Well, the same as the first aspect of the last one. It's showing each other that we love each other. If the first one is showing God that we love him, then this one, our priority to each other, is that we love each other and that we show each other that we love each other. Go to John 13. John 13 and verse 34, look what Jesus says. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. That you also love one another. There you are. Jesus loves us. Therefore, we must love one another in the same way. Incidentally, verse 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. There it is again. Can you see the order of priority? God, each other, and then the world. Never get the priorities mixed up, but if you keep them clear, then it will end up in the world believing that God sent Jesus and that we'll really see people coming through to know the Lord. But here we have showing each other that we love each other, loving each other with the same love that Jesus loves us with. And that primarily, I mean, if you wanted to talk about the love of Jesus, I mean, there are, it's, it's a diamond with a million facets and you can pick out any facet and it's absolutely valid. But for me, one of the most beautiful facets of the diamond of Jesus' love is that he loves us and accepts us just the way we are. I mean, that surely is one of the most beautiful facets of the diamond of God's love. That he loves us and accepts us just the way we are. And when it comes to showing each other that we love each other, then one of the primary things in that is quite simply that we are therefore going to accept each other just the way we are. Love is being accepted. Remember, the church is a family. I mean, what is the f one of the fundamental aspects of family love? It's that you are accepted. It's that you belong that you have a place that no one can take away because that place is yours. Can you see? Acceptance and belonging. And you see, when you have that, it breeds a sense of security, a sense of emotional and physical security as well. Now, you see, the thing is, that it's in showing each other that we love each other, it's in accepting each other, it's in bringing about that sense of emotional security. It's that which creates the necessary environment for one of the things that God is going to be doing in our lives in the church. All right. And it's this. He's going to be sorting our lives out. Now, can you see... Children need sorting out. All of you with children know that you've got to discipline your children. But God has put them in a loving family because the love and acceptance is the atmosphere, the secure atmosphere, in which they feel safe about being sorted out. Can you see that? You create the environment of love and it's that environment which is needed in order for children to be effectively disciplined and brought up. Now, God is wanting to discipline each one of us to bring our lives in accordance with his will. So what does he do? He says, right, I'm going to put them in a family atmosphere where they all love each other just the way they are. And in that environment, it is safe to let the Lord work on you. 
tremendously important. So that one of the things we're going to be seeing is that part of the reason for being in a church is that it should we're going to see very often why it doesn't, and we're going to make sure we don't fall into the traps. But that one of the reasons for God having us as being part of a church is because it's his will, it's his way of putting us in an environment where we can feel safe enough to really let the Lord work deeply in us. Can you see? reinforce the whole time because sometimes when God's really dealing with you it can be unnerving I mean no you know I mean sort of don't you know have no bones about that <laughs> all right God will deal with us as firmly as is needed and all of us have to face some very very unpleasant truths about ourselves and and often when God really is dealing with you it can be very easy to start to lose that sense of his love and acceptance now, the reason that you're put in a church is that, all right, you're perhaps really being dealt with by God, really going through a hard time. God's, God seems a million miles away. Well, I don't feel that God loves me. I don't feel that God accepts me. But the point is, you're going to be in a family of other believers, and they are loving you, and they are accepting you all the way through it. Can you see how much easier that makes it to have faith in God's love, even through the hard times? It's the family atmosphere where God can discipline his children. Right, so that's we've got to show each other that we love each other. The second aspect of our commitment to each other is serving one another. We've got to show each other that we love each other, but we've also got to serve each other as well. Go to Matthew and chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 and find verse 25. And this is Jesus speaking to the disciples. He says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Now, we're going to be seeing that this is the practical outworking of koinonia that we saw last week. Remember that fellowship or koinonia means specifically what you can contribute towards the partnership. Not what you can get out of the sharing, but what you actually can share. And of course, in the family of God, we have an intense responsibility to be caring for each other, to be looking out for each other, to be making sure that people are okay. Do they need any help? Is there any assistance that we can give to them? It's got to work out in the practical, nitty-gritty helping each other in day-to-day -day life. And of course, as well, we have an absolute responsibility to be caring for and looking after any poor who end up amongst us. Any needs that end up amongst us that we have a responsibility to actually meet. And we'll be seeing that in detail in a future talk. Now, can you see that this duty to each other parallels number one? We saw that our priority to God is to show him that we love him and to serve him, to actually demonstrate that, that love in practical obedience. And therefore, in our priority to each other, it's showing each other that we love each other, and then it is practical service between us. I mean, for some people, I mean, some people are a bit, you know, sort of like they're, they're not very good at saying emotional things. But other people, <laughs> they can say, oh, I love you in the Lord at the drop of a hat. All right. But that can be just words. It's in practical servanthood, one to another, that will really show us whether we love each other or whether it is just words, all right? <coughs> so then, in the church family, our priority is to love one another and to serve one another. And so the third priority, number three, is that we have a work of faith and a labour of love towards the world. We have a responsibility to love the world.
Now, go to 1 John, chapter 1, and let's just... Uh, there's, there's one hurdle to climb here, which we will climb very, very quickly. I'm saying that our third priority is to love the world. And in 1 John 1, verse 15, you read this. Do not love the world. <laughs> so, so here am I saying, well, we've got to love the world. And, and, and here the Bible says, you mustn't love the world. Now, do you know what the aunt, you know, I mean, well, I'll tell you. I'm right, the Bible's wrong. <laughs> no, no, that is not, no, 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 there is an actual very sensible uh, reason that it says that. Let's just keep re reading on. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So in actual fact, you can see it's not actually saying don't love the world you mustn't love the sinfulness of the world that's what it's saying there all right and in actual fact the emphasis that we need is John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish so in the same way that God loves the world we are called to do exactly the same now then, again, two aspects. <coughs> two aspects of our priority of loving the world. And the first one of this is preaching the gospel. It's evangelism. That is our number one priority when it comes to the world. Go to Acts. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, and this is Jesus speaking to the disciples, he says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus wants us to be witnesses to the ends of the earth, hometown, you know, Jerusalem first, then Jew. But, I mean, he just wants everyone to be hearing the gospel. Go to Matthew 28. Matthew 28 and verse 19. Again, Jesus, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So there is our priority to the world, to be preaching the gospel, to be evangelizing. We need to understand this. There is nothing greater you can do for someone than to bring them to Jesus. When you have brought someone to Jesus, you have done the greatest thing that anyone can do for them. Because you have brought them to the point where they are no longer going to be spending eternity in the lake of fire. I consider that the people who brought me to Jesus did me a great favour, believe me. Can you see, there's nothing greater you can do for someone than to bring them to Jesus and to bring them into salvation. And can you see, here we're talking about our relationship as a family to outsiders. Now, regarding people who aren't in the family, those people out there who aren't in our family, what is it that we want for them more than anything else? I'll tell you, we want them to be in our family, don't we? We want them to be sharing in all the blessings that Jesus and salvation have actually brought us. But when we talk about that, preaching the gospel, evangelizing, uh, we mustn't sort of think that, um, you know, that, that simply telling people about Jesus is enough because it isn't. Go to Romans 15. And remember, each one of these six things that this is a preview, we'll be doing one in-depth study on each one. We're just sort of skimming, you know, sort of uh, highlights of a goodies to come really tonight is. Romans 15. And this is Paul talking about the role he played as a witness. Romans 15, verse 18, he says, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has wrought through me to win obedience from the Gentiles. Incidentally, isn't, isn't Paul's language different from the language that we're tempted to use? You know, I mean, sort of, we talk about, you know, what, 
what we've done for God, don't we? You know, we talk about we won them for Jesus. Or, you know, sort of we, you know, we, we brought those people into healing. Or, you know, it's sort of we, the emphasis is what we did for Jesus. But look at Paul. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has wrought through me to win. Paul was very clear in his mind. He weren't winning anyone. But he was letting the Lord win people through him. Big difference. Careful with the old testimony. The old eye can creep in very, very easily. And he says, look, to win obedience from the Gentiles by word and deed and by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, can you see, he says, by words, yes, but that's not enough. He says, by deeds and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, for instance, one of the things we're going to see is that, in actual fact, the type of lives we are living is more important than the words that we actually speak. And uh, we're going to be seeing that, I mean, you can be a really verbal Christian, but verbal Christians whose lives aren't matching up with what they're saying in actual fact, doing more damage. It'd be better if they shut up altogether <laughs> and we'll actually be seeing why that is. Okay. So then, works, the way we live, as far as evangelism is concerned, is as important as the actual words that we speak. And that leads us on to the second aspect of our labour of love towards the world. And it's this. We're going to be seeing that our responsibility towards to the world is secondly to be doing good works in the world. Those of you who are into everything by faith, everything by faith, everything by faith, you're going to be in for a shock because we're going to be seeing all the things that are by works. <laughs> all right, go to Matthew five. Matthew five. Matthew chapter five and verse. 15, Jesus says, men don't, put a, uh, don't light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but they put it on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Can you see? We win people for the Lord through good works. Go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12. And Peter says, Maintain good conduct among the Gentiles, so that in case they speak against you as a wrongdoer, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So we have a responsibility to be doing good works, to be doing good deeds in the world. And one of the reasons we must doing, be doing that is this. People are not what I call salvation fodder. Non-Christians are not just souls to be saved. The misunderstanding traditionally amongst Christians of what the soul is, and we've seen it in the salvation series, the soul is actually you, your character, your personality. You know, in that sense, to call a lady a dear old soul is absolutely right. But the misunderstanding of it is that we're all walking around with this little bit of us somewhere, which is a soul. And that's the bit God's after. Well, yeah, God is after your soul, but only because you are your soul. Can you see? God wants you. And traditionally, Christianity has rather... It's rather gone out there as if it says, well, I mean, you know, we don't care about you as a person, but we do want to get your soul saved. Can you see? And that everything becomes any old excuse to get a soul saved. You know, to get sort of some, some poor person squirming in the anxious seat, as they used to call it, or something like that. No, we mustn't think that people are just salvation fodder in any way at all. We're going to be seeing just how much the Lord loves unbelievers. And that the reason that they're not salvation fodder the reason that they're not just there to be got into the kingdom is, oh, don't worry about them, but we just want to notch them up on, on our Bible, is that unbelievers are worthy of more respect than that. And therefore, it is absolutely vital 
that if our love for unbelievers is going to show itself, then it's got to be backed up again with practical service. Tell people about Jesus, yes. But don't tell them about Jesus and then not give them the help they need. I heard a lovely story once about a couple of guys who were going to a church, and this church, you know, had a crack at door-to-door -door visitation. And, uh, you know, and they were tending to send out the people who couldn't do it or who were giving it a first try with someone a bit more experienced. And there was this guy who was a plumber, and it was his first time, and he had no confidence that he'd be any good at it at all. I mean, knocking on doors just wasn't his thing. You know, and it's like after... A, you know, sort of like, you know, he sort of knocked on a couple of doors and the door would open, the purse would open the door and it'd be met with this bloke standing there. <laughs> you know, and after about 30 seconds, I think, oh, and he just shut the door, you know, so he couldn't get any words out, you know, and so it got to the point where the bloke he'd been sent out with, now, now look, you know, I think you better leave this to me. You just stand there and smile, I'll do the talking and that. And so he said, that's fine by me, you know, no, no problem. I'll just hover there waving a Bible about a bit. Anyway, the next door they knocked on, this old lady came to the door and she was covered in soot and dirt, you see, and she opened the door and uh, you know and the bloke who was good at the talking said excuse me you know can we come in can we talk to you about the Lord Jesus can we tell you the good news about Jesus you see and she said I'm sorry I haven't got time to talk about anything my boilers busted and it's winter and I haven't got any hot water anyway the bloke who was no good at talking said hang on excuse me madam and he marched in and in three hours, her boiler was fixed and she was a Christian. Is he? So can you see the way in which it's always got to be again through practical service? And you see, the thing is that we are saved by faith and so is everyone else. We are saved by faith, but we win other people to Jesus through good works. Can you see? To have the witnessing, to have the verbal without the life is just an absolute waste of time. So, can you, have you got that order of priorities in your mind now? As a church, we are called to a threefold aim. And this aim has three parts and there is an order of importance which mustn't be mixed up. Number one, we are here to love and serve God. Then, after that, and in fact only because of that, we are here to love and serve each other. And then, after that, we are here to love and to serve the world. That is God's order of priority, and that is what we must stick to. You see, and the reason is this, because some people think, well, look, why, why does this, we can understand God coming first, but why does the church come second? You see, all the budding evangelicals are jumping up and down. No, there's a lost world out there. The world is more important. The world is more important. No, it's not. And for this reason, you see, you've got to remember <coughs> that God is self-employed. Very important. Every morning, you, I mean, God doesn't get up in the morning and commute to the office. Mm -hmm. And because he's self-employed, you see, he works from home. Home. Now, where does God live? What's his address? Well, it's in heaven, but remember, it's also down here. What is God's address in Chigwell? We are. God is self-employed. He works into the world, but he does so from home. He doesn't do it from an office. So therefore, can you see that the reason that it's the Lord, then the church, and then the world, as opposed to the Lord, the world, and the church, is because everything God does is through the church. Therefore, if the church isn't right, nothing else is going to get done right. Therefore, if you put the world before the church, it's the world that's going to suffer, isn't it? 
The reason for the priorities being God, obviously, but the church is your number two priority in your life, your churches, for the simple reason that everything God does, he does through the church. Therefore, that doesn't mean that the world is going to get left out. That means that it's when the church is right that the world is really going to start seeing the glory of Jesus. Remember, God's plan of redemption, which is running throughout its eternity, remember, it's a family business. It's us, and it's run from home. Therefore, we must make sure that that priority list never gets turned around. The Lord first, then each other as a church, and only then the world itself. Now then, the next six studies are going to be dealing with each subdivision of those three aspects or those three priorities in much greater detail. So we shall continue next week and I believe it will be with a worshipping church. Why it is we must be a worshipping church. So we will carry on next time.